Hello, welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 49, Mary Percy and Jill the Ripper. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California, and joining the show today is writer and researcher on the life of Mary Percy, Sarah Beth Hopton. By way of introducing Ms. Hopton to our listeners, she is a college instructor, writer, and graphic designer who has a bachelor's degree in political journalism from Florida Southern College and attended Georgetown University's Institute for Political Journalism and worked at the Pentagon in the Army's press department. In 2000, she won a Rotary International Scholarship that enabled her to study for a master's degree in creative writing at the University of Lancaster. She currently teaches English composition and is a full-time master's student working on a second degree in English literature. She publishes magazine articles regularly, but Woman at the Devil's Door, her biography of Mary Percy, will be her first nonfiction book. Joining Miss Hopton on the show today is true crime historian Martin Fido from Boston, Massachusetts, and the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Robert McLaughlin. A few years ago, a scientist in New Zealand, I believe it was, studied the Openshaw letter and was able to extract what he claimed was female DNA from this letter, pointing to, in his opinion, the writer of the letter being a woman. And the press got a hold of this, and it was a minor little frenzy of uh, Jack the Ripper actually being a Jill the Ripper. And this uh, idea of Jack the Ripper being a female isn't new. It dates back concurrently to the times of the murders. Um, But nevertheless, this newest uh, press about the testing of the Openshaw letter, every single press article, it seemed, contained Mary Percy as the main suspect, if there was a Jill the Ripper. And if you do a Google search on Jill the Ripper, the first thing that will pop up will be a picture of Mary Percy or a photograph of her wax figure. I think that's interesting because Mary Percy was never directly accused of being Jill the Ripper. As far as I know, the only female who was actually named in print as being a Jill the Ripper was Olga Cherskov. It wasn't until William Stewart wrote his book in the 30s, I believe it was, his book Jack the Ripper, A Sensational and Convincing Solution, that he brings up Mary Percy as illustrative of the fact that a woman could have been capable of committing horrific crimes like those of Jack the Ripper. Um, Stuart doesn't actually accuse Mary Percy of being Jack the Ripper, as far as I know. But nevertheless, Mary Percy's name has become synonymous with Jill the Ripper. But but the idea that, that the Ripper was a woman isn't a new one, like I said. Um, it, every possible scenario was mentioned during... Um, the Autumn of Terror, including the the Ripper being a woman. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, had a, a few um, theories, all of which seemed to involve either a midwife uh, committing the crimes or a man committing the crimes but being dressed as a woman. So the idea that Jack the Ripper was a Jill the Ripper isn't a new one, but I believe it can be entirely discounted. Mm-hmm. What led William Stewart to believe it was a midwife, and most of the midwife scenarios stems from the fact that people up until the mid-1980s were under the impression that Mary Kelly was pregnant at the time of her death. 
But it wasn't until the discovery of Thomas Bond's uh, reports in the mid-1980s saying categorically that she was not pregnant that we can at that point discount any kind of idea that, that, um, that had been proposed so far of a scenario that the, that the Ripper was female. So, Does anyone else have any uh, comments to add to those statements that I just made? Is that basically a rundown of the Jewel of the Ripper theory? What do you think, Martin? Another interesting thing is that I don't know, and I don't know anyone who does know, what the evidence is that Conan Doyle directly said this, uh, that he actually held that view. It's been reported over and over again, but I don't know what the original source is for claiming that Conan Doyle thought that. Otherwise, fine. Don't forget the um, story that appeared in the Daily Express of the sailor's wife whose uh, husband had given her venereal disease and so she went out looking for the hooker who had caused this and killed all the prostitutes on the way. That's to be added to the midwife theory. And perhaps I'd add that the reason for midwives being suspect or men dressed as midwives is everyone assumed in the 1880s that the Ripper must have been covered with blood. So you look for a slaughterman who could have a blood-stained apron and then somebody has the bright idea of saying or a midwife who would be walking through the city with a blood-stained apron and no one would pay any attention. And wasn't the Chertoff um, story that Woodhall uh, came up with uh, similar to the one you had mentioned about uh, the revenge um, yes. doctor? Yes, I think so, yes. It's a, it's a um, That's one of the rather badly worked out ones. There doesn't seem to be any source for it. And one deeply suspects that he made it up or heard a bit of gossip and uh, elaborated on it. Yeah, he claims a, an American newspaper article prior to World War One, but of course, but of course, nobody's ever found this uh, newspaper article. Yeah, that's right. And I've seen the uh, it, it uh, written that the source of Conan Doyle's statements comes from his son. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've read anyway. It's possible, but I don't know that Adrian Conan Doyle ever wrote anything. Uh, it would have to be word of mouth, I think. But I am open to correction on that. I saw, a new, I saw a newspaper article on it once, but then again, that doesn't directly attribute it to Conan Doyle. So, um, Is that well. Rob? Yes. If that's Rob, I didn't say a big hello to you and how nice it is to be talking to you again. And it's nice to talk to you again, Martin. Now, speaking of uh, uh, inventions, one of the most iconic images of the Mary Percy case is the idea that, and I believe it came from Melville McNaughton in his memoirs, that she was sitting down playing the piano, and when they discovered the poker, um, she uh, was basically started chanting, killing mice, killing mice, killing mice. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe McNaughton was the source of that story, and it has been, and like I said, it's become this, this iconic part of the Mary Percy murder case, but there's no contemporary press or, or trial transcripts that would seem to bear out this little action by Mary Percy. Do we want to uh, believe that this actually occurred because Melvin McNaughton had said it? Or is this kind of uh, a myth that's been created around this case? I, I don't think that it was true. I absolutely think it was a myth that turned into a legend. It's, it kind of portrays her as being um, even more creepy than she really was. I think that um, what really happened, and from my research... Um, what I can point to happening is that there were conflicting stories. You know, she absolutely was chasing and killing mice that morning. That's uh, verified by several people in the 
in the house. And then um, McNaughton did say when he was asked what she was doing and he did respond. She, she just sort of sat there and, and was whistling and said, killing mice, killing mice, killing mice. But all of the other investigators and officers and constables that were interviewed had very conflicting stories. You know, some would say, no, she was just sitting in the armchair and whistling while the investigation was going on inside her house. Others would say, no, she was actually at the piano while they went upstairs and talked to Sarah Butler and some of the other residents of the house. So I don't think that you could reasonably, um, I don't think that you could reasonably prove that, that she did in fact respond by saying killing mice, killing mice, killing mice. But, but, but I don't know for sure. I can only tell you what my research has turned up. Beth, could I ask you a question? Yes, I please. I haven't worked on this case for some time. Why is somebody I've always thought of as Mrs. Eleanor Percy now being described as Mary Percy? Well, uh, from the genealogical research that I've turned up, her, her actual Christian name was Mary Eleanor Wheeler. And then she went by the last name of Piercy, but it was not through a proper marriage. She just assumed the last name of John Charles Piercy, with whom she'd lived for several years. But did she actually use the first name Mary or the first name Eleanor? Um, I think that from what I've uncovered, most of the people that were closest to her actually called her Ellie. Um, sort of That's a, a, what I thought. Yeah, a pet or nickname from Eleanor. She did, however, sign yeah. most all of her letters M-E. So right. Mary. But I, I suspect that Eleanor or Ellie is, is going to be more really what she was called. I mean, Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. Okay, That's, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, some of our listeners may not even be familiar with the, the case of Mary Percy. And those that are familiar with it, a lot of the times they would stumble on it simply through the Jack the Ripper case. Although it was, you know, its own um, press sensation at the time, along with, you know, it's, it's one of the handful of late Victorian and early Edwardian press sensation murder cases. She's kind of been, because of the Jill the Ripper connection, a lot of people are led to her case through the Jack the Ripper investigation. A lot of the police officials overlap in the two investigations, and, the, and, and some of the doctors that were involved in the Ripper investigation were also involved in the, um, in the Mary Percy case, like I've already mentioned, Mel McNaughton, for example. Could you... Um, Give us a, a brief description of the events surrounding the Hamstead murders. Yeah, and let me um, just a, a couple of things. You know, you were talking about how how was it that Mary became linked with the Ripper case, or how was it that she her name was put forth as a potential to be Jill the Ripper. And I think a lot of that can be found if you look back at the newspaper clippings of the time, how they described. Um, this murder, you know, in the beginning, nobody really knew who had committed the crime. And it was so close by, well, close by two years. You know, it, it happened on a Friday. And I believe the last known Ripper um, victim was also killed on a Friday. And uh, and it was two years prior. And so if you look at the language that was used in the newspapers, it's it's very obvious that people immediately assumed that this was the work of Jack the Ripper um, there, I have a quote here that's a Colonel Munsell, and I've never figured out who this person was or why he went to the mortuary to review the body, but he said that whoever murdered Phoebe Hogg, who of course at that time was unknown, abandoned himself to an excess of diabolical rage which knew no control. You know, it's very dramatic, but it's also very, it's the language that was also used to describe the Ripper. So I think that's what originally led to um, Mary Percy being perceived as a potential Jill the Ripper. Um, but the, the 
The situation was this. Mary Percy was uh, in love with a man named Frank Samuel Hogg. He and his brother owned a moving or a removal company. Um, They would move furniture from houses uh, all throughout Camden and Kentish Town. And she fell in love with him. He, um, they first met, I believe, sometime in 1887 or 1888 when he worked for his mother's provisional store on King Street. Mary fell instantly in love with him. They proceeded to have some kind of romance, although it's, it's really unclear if the romance became intimate straight away or not. But she took to leaving uh, very juicy letters on the countertop for him to find and read, and then strangely return. She would always ask for the letters to be returned to her. Um, Frank had always claimed that he thought Mary was married, and even when their affair did become intimate in December of, uh, of 1888, he always said that she thought he thought that she was married. So they have this affair. Uh, somewhere along the way, Frank meets Phoebe Hogg, and she is working as a domestic servant. Um, they uh, produce a child, or she gets pregnant, and Frank wants nothing to do with the baby or with Phoebe. He goes to see Mary one night, and uh, Mary is actually the one that convinces him to stay with Phoebe and to marry her and make a legitimate woman of her. He does this. Um, the baby is born. Her pet name is Tiggy. She's named after her mother. Uh, it's a very unhappy marriage with lots of secrets and betrayals on both on both parties' side. And um, then, of course, on October 24, 1890, um, Mary invites Phoebe over for tea and uh, allegedly bludgeons her to death and then slits her throat, stuffs her in a preambulator, and uh, wheels her four miles away, dumps her body, goes back to the house, kills the baby, and dumps the baby another two miles away. And then, you know, there was a consequent trial and, and execution of Mary for the crime. Now, some of the details of the crime that you had just related um, conflict with some of the other stories that we hear about how the crime went down. For instance, um, it's typically uh, written that the baby was suffocated underneath the body in the perambulator, but you suggest that, that she disposed of Phoebe Hogg's body first and then returned to the house to get the child. She murders it. And, and then um, takes it in an, another direction to, to dispose of that. Yeah, I, I and, and I'm not the only, it's not that this is my opinion solely. You know, Dr. Pepper, who was the coroner during the coroner's court case, said there was no blood evidence found on the baby. And there was so much blood pooled in the bottom of the preambulator in which Phoebe Hogg was, um, you know, dispatched that, one of the inspectors could actually take a, a, a tablespoon and, and just spoon tablespoons full of blood out of the bottom of the pram, which suggests yeah. that there's absolutely no way that the baby could have been in that pram or near it and not had blood evidence on her. So I don't think that it's reasonable to think that the baby was dispatched in the pram, certainly not under the weight of its mother, and not even probably on top of its mother. I mean, perhaps you could have put some some cloth or clothes or lining or something and insulated the bloody body of, of the baby's mother well enough that you could have put the baby on top of Phoebe and maybe she wouldn't have been stained, but I just can't imagine that that could have been true. I mean, you know, you're you're wheeling this perambulator down cobblestone streets. It's bumpy. Whatever the contents inside the pram are, they're gonna they're gonna rub up against each other. It's just highly, highly unlikely that the baby was was dispatched in the pram alongside or under its mom. That's very interesting. I'd never heard that before. 
I can help you over Colonel Monsell. Colonel Bolton Monsell was the chief constable of the Metrop- uh, Metropolitan Police. That's the rank between the, um, uh, the people who'd risen from the pavement, uh, going up through constable, sergeant, inspector, superintendent. Uh, but between them and the level of the commissioner and assistant commissioners came the chief constable. It's the position that Melville McNaughton held for, for some time uh, in the CID department. And Bolton Monsell was uh, responsible for looking into the Alice McKenzie murder. He was chief constable from 1886 to 1910. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's been on my list of things that I needed to, to further research, so I'm really appreciative of that. You're very welcome. <laughs> now, the way the body was disposed, uh, the way the, the body of Phoebe Hogg was disposed, as Sarah mentioned earlier, uh, did resemble, apparently, to the press, at least at the time, the, uh, a, rip, a ripper victim, meaning that she was uh, laying, um, on, I believe, on the sidewalk against a building um, with her throat cut. How do you see that this murder actually went down in the kitchen? And um, at what point and for what purpose do you believe, Sarah, um, Mary Percy slit the throat of Phoebe Hogg? You know, I've thought about this. I had occasion, um, thanks to the generosity of a a writer who actually owns, Deborah McGock actually owns the house uh, in which... Ah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? She... But um, when I went to England last year, she was very kind and allowed me to spend some time in the house. So I videotaped and took measurements and and tried to recreate the scene. Of course, the house has been altered significantly since then, um, except for the stairway and and the hall. But the rooms are not divided as they had been. There's been a couple of additions. The garden is still as it was um, with the partitions in the side, which is kind of neat. So it's really hard to to think about or or to recreate this crime. But from one of the... um, one of the reports, and I can't recall if it was a, um, a police commissioner's report or if it was a reporter, I believe they said that the actual dimensions of the kitchen were very, very small, like 12 by 9 perhaps, and that it, the kitchen itself was um, just kind of jammed full with all kinds of stuff. You know, it was a very clean, <laughs> crowded kitchen. And so I think that the most logical explanation um, is this, that uh, Mary Percy did invite Phoebe and Tiggy for tea, and I don't think she did it with the premeditation to murder them both. Um, I believe that when they when they arrived at the house, uh, they unpacked the pram, put the baby on the floor or in the couch, maybe in the kitchen, and Phoebe went into the kitchen um, to accept some tea. They sat down, they had words. Phoebe, according to Mary Percy, said something that she didn't like, something very cruel and mean, and this caused Mary to snap. Uh, She reached for whatever was closest to her, which happened to be a a kitchen poker, and she um, brought that kitchen poker down on on Phoebe's head. I don't, I think this would have stunned her, but I, I, I do not believe it killed her instantly. I don't even believe it, it, it incapacitated her instantly because there was obviously a struggle of some kind as evidenced by the broken glass that was found. I tend to think that the glass was broken by the wielding of the poker. You know, if, if you're in tight quarters and you have two women that are fighting, one has a poker, she, she draws it back. It could have very easily hit the window pane and broken the glass. Um, at some point, Phoebe was incapacitated by the blow. She was struck three times on the head, according to the autopsy reports. And then at, at that point, um, you know, there would have been 
a great deal of blood lost. Uh, she would have been completely unconscious. The baby was crying at this point. We know that because the next door neighbor heard that and testified to it in court. And I believe that the cutting of the throat was um, a practical measure only. I don't think she was trying to imitate Jack the Ripper. I don't think she uh, was was thinking anything other than a few steps ahead, which was, I have to get this body out of my kitchen. Uh, she was panicked. I think she cut the throat so that she could actually bend the head um, enough so that she could get the, the body into the pram um, and fit it you know, as comfortably as a grown woman in a baby's pram could be fitted, if that makes sense. Now, this was... All right, Sarah Beth, now this was obviously a a loud, violent struggle. Um, Mm. uh, What did the neighbors have to say about it? There was only one. There was no one else in the house when the crime was committed. And some have suggested that that is... Uh, evidence enough that this was premeditation. I don't. I don't think that that was true because not everybody in the house had the same coming and going pattern. There were a few people in the house that were out of work um, or didn't work, and they would go and visit and come back in the middle of the day. You know, she really, other than the butlers, which had a pretty regular job and a pretty regular coming and going pattern, she couldn't have predicted when the house would be completely empty. That said, the only person that heard anything was the next door neighbor, Mrs. Crowhurst. And the only thing that she said she heard was the crying of a baby, which was pretty quickly after that silenced. She said she heard the breaking of the glass and she peeked up over the the garden wall to see what was going on. She called to Mrs. Percy, but the noise very quickly uh, stopped and she, Mrs. Percy did not respond to Mrs. Crowhurst. So she really didn't think anything else of it. That's fascinating. Now Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the neighbor also saw the broken window at some, at some point later after Mary Percy had apparently hung some kind of, um, blanket uh, behind it or something to uh, to you know keep the draft out or block the view to inside the kitchen or something like that. Isn't that true? Well, there was a green blind that was hung, and I don't think that it was hung after the kitchen blind or after the kitchen glass was broken. I think that there was um, a window with a blind on it, and over that some lace curtains. Uh, and we know that there were lace curtains because those curtains, which were blood spattered were put into the copper out in the the bath area and were later found by two of the uh, residents of the flat. Um, I don't know that that Mrs. Crowhurst, the next-door neighbor, saw the glass. I know that other residents in the house saw the glass, and when the police came to investigate the following day, they, they told the police about that. But I don't know if Mrs. Crowhurst saw the glass or not. And you said that you didn't, you don't believe that she uh, invited Phoebe over to her house with the intention of killing her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been popularly portrayed the Mary Percy case that this was a case of a woman uh, scorned, or uh, she she murdered uh, Phoebe and the child in in a, in a fit of jealousy over mm-hmm. um, her uh, Phoebe's relationship with her lover Frank Hawk. But you disagree with that notion. Yeah, I do. I'm really conflicted by it because I think it's it's um, it's just a pretty pat explanation for what I think is a very complicated motivation, and it really doesn't fit with a lot of what we know about Mary, especially especially about the baby killing the baby. 
I could better buy the jealousy and revenge motivation if she hadn't also killed the child. But what I've been able to dig up about her early life and her life as a young woman was that she was exceptionally fond of children. She was a nurse to a young boy uh, before her epilepsy caused her to be discharged from service. Um, she was known in Igtham, which is where she was where she was from and, and born and raised for a while. Uh, and then later when they moved to Mile End, she was known in those neighborhoods as being the kind of young child who, if there was a, a, a kid in the neighborhood who was going to be spanked by their parents, she would hide the kid and sort of arbitrate their release on behalf of, of the child to the parent in, in exchange for a promise from the parent that they wouldn't be beaten. You know, she was very protective of children. She... Um, she talked about baby Tiggy to her mother, Charlotte Ann, frequently. And and she always, you know, in her letter writing, when she would talk about Tiggy, it was always in the sweetest and most endearing terms. And it just, it it's never set well with me that, that she would have murdered the child out of jealousy, too. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for somebody who displays such kindness and compassion, not only to children, but, you know, she was also described as being just a very mild-mannered person and when she went to Newgate, she would reserve some of the bread she was feed, fit, um, fed to feed to the birds. It just doesn't add up to me. I, as far as, you know, her motivation for killing Phoebe, that too, you know, she went when Phoebe was um, was taken ill in November uh, of 1888 or 89, I believe it was. Um, it was Mary that went and nursed her. And apparently, uh, according to newspaper reports and eyewitness testimony, she spared absolutely no expense to make sure that Phoebe had, um, you know, eggs and chocolate and, and things that would make her feel better. She actually lived with the hogs in their house for two weeks and nursed Phoebe back to health. One would think that if she wanted this woman dead, that would have been the perfect opportunity to kill her. Um, so why did she wait so long? You know, what the, the affair was going along with Frank Hogg smoothly. What did she have to lose? He'd never promised her marriage, and she'd never asked for marriage. I don't know. I, I just can't reconcile in my mind what it was that she thought she would have gained by killing this woman, out of jealousy, that is. So, no, the, the motive of jealousy just has never sat well with me. Now, you said she was uh, mild-mannered, and um, I was just wondering, um, does she have any other outbursts or, let's say, um, confrontations uh, with other people that we know of that, um, you know, fights or disagreements or, you know, short temper or... Yeah, there are. Um, there are definitely outbursts, but they're all self-directed. In other words, she had tried to commit suicide at least on three other occasions. One was shortly after the death of her father. Um, and then the other two that that I know of, because I have statements um, given by John Charles Percy, the man whose last name she took and with whom she lived for quite a while, that uh, after a, an emotional argument between the two, she ran upstairs, um, took some poison and tried to kill herself. Uh, he made her throw up the poison, and then she had um, a fit of some kind, fell asleep, woke up, remembered nothing about it. And this happened a couple of times, according to Percy's um, affidavit that he gave to Frecky Palmer. There was also another really bizarre incident that happened with the man who kept her, who actually gave mm. her money. You know, I was going to gonna ask about him, yes. Yeah, yeah, this guy is such a character. And, and you know, it's, it's really um, sad because I know the least about him. I've been... Um, unsuccessful thus far in tracking him down in the genealogical records. Um, in, in, I can't even I can't even get his his the real spelling of his name. It's very frustrating. They pushed him, 
They pushed mm-hmm. him out of the case. They pushed him out of the case very quickly, didn't they? As if they were protecting his reputation in so yeah. far as they could. And, you know, I'm glad you said that, Martin, because that was my read on it, too. You know, he only gave testimony in the magistrate's hearing. He never actually went to the trial at the Old Bailey. And he was ushered in um, very quickly at about one o'clock in the afternoon during the hearing and gave very, very brief testimony. The coroner took a letter that he had exchanged um, telling Mary that she needed to get representation very quickly. And he read it privately but would not enter it into evidence. And yeah, I got the same sense too that because he was a businessman, he was he was being protected. He was a but, gentleman. <laughs> yeah, he was a gentleman. Um, but to answer your question uh, about that strange incident that happened, apparently one one night when he was over there having dinner uh, with Mary, he told Frecky Palmer in an affidavit that she started acting very strangely, um, became hysterical, and started wielding a knife, uh, kind of brandishing it against her, the palm of her hand as though she were sharpening it. Um, sort of walked over to him, looked at him, her eyes rolled in the back of her head very fiendishly, and his response was, you know, oh, hell, what if this woman is, is going mad? What am I going to do about this? <laughs> uh, but, then, but then that was it. Nothing happened. She kind of came to... And um, sat on his lap and gave him a hug, and they resumed their, their, uh, you know, whatever it was they were doing that that afternoon. So she, I she guess what he went from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she, you know, there were certainly um, some outbursts of that kind, which I think lends itself to a conversation about her mental instability. But but there weren't any other that I've been able to find. There were not any other um, violent or rageful outbursts other than her own sort of bent on self-destruction. Now, you um, mentioned earlier of her epilepsy. And I don't know if, the, if that was widely – you'll have to answer – if it was widely reported in the press at the time that she was an epileptic or um, – because I don't believe it came out in the uh, trial, but L. Forbes Winslow argued uh, that because of her epilepsy, uh, she should not have been executed. And Mary Percy being an epileptic, I don't know if that's a widely known fact. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that might have been the, the motivating influence in her murder of Phoebe Hawk? Um, yeah, she absolutely was an epileptic. Um, I tend to think she might have had temporal lobe epilepsy, not not the grand mal or the petite mal forms of epilepsy, although there is documentary evidence suggesting that, that she had um, the fall-down kinds of seizures as well, the grand mal or the petite mal seizures. But I think some of her other behavior lends itself a little better to TLE than it does to some of the more common forms of epilepsy. In none of the censuses, however, is she deemed an epileptic, so I thought that was interesting. No, it was not generally known that she was epileptic because Mary did not want it to be known. She absolutely flat refused to let Arthur Hutton and Frecky Palmer try her um, on condition of of insanity or or with a plea of insanity because, uh, one, she claimed she knew nothing about the murder and therefore was innocent and shouldn't go to jail, period. But more importantly, she just didn't think that her fate, you know, withering away in Broadmoor Lunatic Asylum would have been any better than than the fate of death. And so she would not let them plea her out. 
But uh, I don't think it was widely known that she was epileptic. And, and it's really quite sad because it completely debilitated her. It was a disease that um, I think fundamentally changed her personality and her brain chemistry. And I think, although I, I won't go so far as to say that she committed the murder in an epileptic trance or a fog, which is what um, Forbes Winslow believed, I do believe that it, it fundamentally changed her and caused um, you know, a type of psychotic break in her such that led to the possibility or the, or the provocation or probability of her committing what, a crime that she wouldn't have otherwise committed. Like any Ripperologist, Beth, I'm sure I believe you ten times rather than Forbes Winslow about anything. <laughs> yeah, you know, learning about Forbes was so interesting to me because, um, you know, he was yet another man that just failed Mary miserably. He, he tried to agitate in her defense in the same way that he tried to agitate for Florence Maybrick unsuccessfully. Um, and, and it really kind of hurt Mary instead of helped her. Uh, he just didn't do what he was supposed to do, and and it was very sad because, you know, he was a fairly preeminent alienist, but by the time that Mary's case came around, he w- he just kind of lost his his own marbles. Right. What was, the, what was the press reaction to all of this? And I know there was a lot of press reaction um, during the time of the murder all the way up until her execution two months later. Um, and, and I was wondering, like, um, if Forbes Winslow was whipping that up, were... Were there others that um, felt a lot of sympathy for her um, because she was a woman or maybe other circumstances? I was just wondering how the the press viewed the murders. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There was a ton of uh, press around this case. They were absolutely fascinated with it. And interestingly, it was such a romanticized story that even as late as, I think it was 1932, there were uh, sort of exposés, retroflective exposés that would go back and name the Percy case as one of the most fascinating and, and um, you know, little understood mysteries in, in the, the annals of British crime. So, you know, no, they've never really gotten over this case. But it was very widely covered. Um, some of the best documentary evidence that I found was from the press clippings that the Home Secretary saved as he was trying to decide whether or not she was going to be reprieved or not. And and it, and as far as the, the tone of the press, it varied. You know, they were uh, vitriolic in their hatred towards Frank Hogg. Most of the press was much more sympathetic towards Mary. And they were sympathetic to her not just because she was a woman, but because they felt that she had been completely manipulated and betrayed by this man. And up until... Um, she was executed, a good number of, of those writing about her still believed that she did not act alone in the execution of this crime. They just couldn't fathom that a woman was you know, physically, mentally, emotionally capable of committing such an atrocious crime. Um, so it kind of, you know, it sort of varied. There was a, a massive, massive outpouring. Almost 2,000 letters were written and sent to Frecky Palmer, which he kept, um, hoping that, uh, or sort of petitioning both the, the Home Secretary and those involved in the case for her reprieve. Um, there, there seemed to be quite a bit of public sympathy for her. On the other hand, there were a few reporters, specifically women reporters, who thought that she was, you know, the devil reincarnate. Uh, one of the uh, press clippings that I found most interesting was the article by George R. Sims, in which he took the stance that Mary Percy was a victim of Frank Hogg. Mm-hmm. And, and he wrote a pretty lengthy article really going after Frank Hogg. Mm-hmm. And, and um, 
he and he and in it he does suggest that she did have an accomplice, and he kind of insinuates that Frank Hogg was the accomplice. Mm-hmm. And then other writers, you know, will echo that and say that if Frank, you know, Frank Hogg should be should have been the one in the dock, not Mary Percy. Or if they were both in the dock together, then he would have been the one executed and not her. What is your opinion on on whether Mary Percy could have committed this act alone? Well, I think she was certainly capable of doing it. I mean, there have been female murderesses, you know, before and since. Uh, To my knowledge, there's never been a crime in Britain committed like it, although there was a a recent case where a woman by the last name of Christie, I believe, um, had murdered the legitimate wife of, of, of her lover's or I'm sorry, had had murdered her lover's legitimate wife, but not there wasn't a child involved in that. But back to the point, I think physically she was capable of doing it, even though she was a, a bit slighter in stature. Um, I did want to add one other thing, though, about the press. It's very interesting to me, and then I'll come back to that and answer that more thoroughly, but it was um, interesting to me. I found that uh, Thomas Hardy actually based some of his characters in... Um, in one of his books on the case, he had arrived in London uh, the day before the Old Bailey trial was set into motion, and he became absolutely fascinated with it. And he wrote his wife later that day and said, you know, all of London is abuzz with this trial about about Mrs. Percy. So I just thought that was really interesting. And apparently there's also a story written based on the Lestrade character um, invented by Sherlock Holmes that's sort of a pastiche of the Mary Percy trial. I don't know, Martin, maybe you can speak to that better. I've not been successful in finding it or reading it. Uh, No, offhand, certainly not. I imagine that the Hardy novel would be Tess of the D'Urbervilles, since that is one where uh, he more or less says, if you've been ambiguously seduced when you're young, and then you got yourself married to, or tried to marry uh, a an apparently perfect man who turned out to be a prudish stinker and walked out on you for having been seduced. You're entitled to c- kill your seducer if he comes back into your life and tries to rescue you from misery. Uh, it's a morally deeply confused novel, which uh, surprising numbers of people think is moving and tragic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought it would have been Tess too, but... Um According to his biographer, it was actually Jude the Obscure, which, you know, I've seen oh. and read. Yeah, I've seen and read both. And oh, I'm no. Not sure. <laughs> Little I don't Father know. Time does the killing there. Yeah, Dumb yeah. And I, don't know, I don't know if I can see that in, uh, in the main female character there. But anyway, that was very interesting. It's um, certainly true that Jude the Obscure, he is attempting to deal with the uh, psychological problems that the late Victorians began to think they saw in the modern woman. Mm-hmm. So Sue's uh, on and off, to and fro, is she erotically attracted or not? Mm-hmm. And the contrast with the basic peasant earthiness of Arabella, that, that is certainly present. And I suppose Mrs. Piercy could have stimulated him to write about it, but, mm-hmm. but really she's not like them. No, I don't think she's like them either. And, and from what I could glean... You know, it was kind of a pastiche. She, he sort of took from Mrs. Piercy uh, and her relationship with Frank Hogg, the element that he took or copied would have been the, the claim that Frank always made that they were not intimate until December of the year 
you know, after he got married. And so right. I guess Thomas Hardy was very interested in that idea of how, you know, love and where are the boundaries and what are the proper boundaries and how could you be, how could you be in love but not consummate the relationship? So I can kind of see that influence yep. there, but it's a bit that's, of a stretch. Yeah, it's that's present certainly. The idea of the sexual on again, off again with mm-hmm. Sue would drive anybody mad. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> but back to your other question about whether or not she could have physically um, committed the murders alone. Yes, I think that she. That she could. And, you know, she never, Mary, that is, never claimed that Frank had anything to do with it. In fact, one of her last uh, requests was, um, or her last acts, rather, was to send a a very lengthy and heartfelt letter to Clara, um, Frank's sister, with whom she was very, very good friends, and say, you know, basically exonerate Frank and say, look, he had nothing to do with it. And the other other thing that I I found was so interesting um, was that Mary actually proposed there was somebody else who committed the crime and that this somebody else was a lover of Phoebe Hoggs and that Phoebe and this lover would use Mary Percy's house to commit their infidelity. infidelity. And uh, she told her mother, Charlotte Ann, this um, two days before she died, that she really wished that this person could be found because if Frank knew about him, you know, things would have ended so differently between them and none of this would have happened. And she really thinks that he was the person that committed the crime and, and, and that the missing rings would be found if only this former lover of Phoebe's um, could be found and summoned. Is that the explanation of the mysterious Spanish telegram or do you think that was just a hoax? I don't think it was a hoax, but it may have been, you know, part of her delusion. She was very delusional towards the end. You know, she was having um, hallucinations. She was having nightmares. She was really, really deluded towards the end. And it may have just been part of that ongoing delusion or fantasy life that she had created. I have tried to track down the marriage that it supposedly, um, that it's supposedly about. You know, Frecky Palmer believed that that it was about a marriage. And I, I did find a marriage record in 1882 in Piccadilly for a woman named Mary E. Wheeler, but I can't right. figure out, you know, who it's to. And, and I haven't been able to, to link it to, to Spain in any other way. You, you should perhaps explain. I just introduced the Spanish tra- uh, telegram casually, but for listeners who don't know the case, well, you might explain the story of the, that, that, that very odd thing at the end of the case. Sure. So her dying request, um, you know, the last day before she died, Frankie Palmer came to see her and uh, she she said, you know, I want to dispense with some of the trinkets that I have. Give this to my mother, this to my sister. Sell off what you can to Madame Tussaud so that the money can go to my defense or else to my mother. And then I would like for you to place in 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 an advertisement in a Madrid newspaper, you know, the following lines, M-E-C-W, quote, I uh, did not betray M.E.W. And nobody has any idea what those initials stand for other than the obvious ones, you know, and were hers. But I don't know who it was addressed to and haven't been, um, haven't been able to track down, you know, where Frank Hogg went after this. I thought for a while perhaps it was addressed secretly to him and he had immigrated to Spain, but he falls off the map in the genealogical rec- records right after this this happens and I can't find him in Spain or any other country. So I don't have any idea what that mysterious um, advert has, has to do with. Thank you. Some, um, some would try to tie it into the whole Jill the Ripper theory 
in, in that it would have referred to an accomplice of hers during the Jack the Ripper murders. Have you heard that mentioned before? Um, no, I haven't. And I guess the only reason I haven't really entertained that is because it's so obvious to me that she's not Jill the Ripper. <laughs> I really right. didn't say Oh, I'm not saying that it makes any sense, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard that. That's really interesting. It, that is one of the things thrown into the mix. Um, now, you, had, uh, as you have been mentioning, have done pretty extensive genealogical research on her. And one of the uh, facts, quote-unquote, that have been um, uh, suggested about Mary Percy was that she was... Uh, that what, His name was Thomas Wheeler, wasn't he? Um, her father mm-hmm. was was executed for a murder committed during a burglary, mm-hmm. and and this is this is a suggested time and time again when you when you read about Mary Percy in the context of how you know murder runs in the family. But what has your research uncovered about uh, Mary Percy's father? Well, it's it's completely um, not true. Her father actually was named James Wheeler, and he was born about 1830 in Birmingham. And he died on August 17th in 1882 um, in Hermitage Wharf Wapping from what on his death certificate is called a double rupture. Now, I don't know what that is other than maybe a herniated disc. Martin, you might, you might know this. Do you know what that, a double rupture is? I'm afraid I do. It is um, hernia in more than one places. More than one okay. place. So basically his uh, intestines were forcing through the stomach wall. And uh, they probably uh, split and infected. Mm. Well, that's what he died from. So it obviously was not a not an easy death, not a fun death at all. But he was not hanged. He was not executed. Um, but he had an equally gruesome death. Uh, they married his his um, his wife, Mary's mother. Her name was Charlotte Ann. Originally, her last name was Kelly. And of course, she became a wheeler. And very romantically. They were married on Valentine's Day. So that connection has been definitively disproven. Um, where did that story come from then that her father was hanged? Uh, that was, he committed murder and was hanged? Yeah, it, well, you know, the story was about a man named Thomas Wheeler from Hertfordshire um, who murdered Edward Anstey. And uh, it was ah. a, a blip in the press. It was actually a pressman, a journalist, who was reporting on Mary Wheeler's crime and did kind of one of those very gossipy exposés and uh, just erroneously printed it. And the only reason I found out about it was because I happened to find the retraction um, in the Times a couple of days or maybe it was even a week or two later. And then once I started doing the genealogical research, I reached out to a, a brilliant genealogist in Hertfordshire, and we just could not find the connection. And that, that's what led me to think, this, this cannot be true. And then finally, I just kind of went backwards and found that, in fact, it wasn't true. Yeah, the Anstey case, that's, that's a fascinating one, isn't it? He bumped off the entire family and buried them in their garden, didn't he? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. What I know of the case is that he murdered a farmer named Edward Anstey, and it oh, was on farmer. a farm. Yeah, and then I was thought, hanged at the time. I'm probably mixing it with another case then. I thought the name Anstey was what rang a bell. Sorry. That's okay, because your case sounds much more tiddly. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, Thomas Wheeler have a daughter named Mary? Yeah, and that that's what was so confusing for a while. We, we really made um, some interesting connections, and it, and it just turned out to be another case of genealogical, um, you know, not the right person. 
but the right place kind of thing. Yeah, not only did he had a, have a daughter named Mary, but his wife was named Charlotte. So it was terribly confusing for quite a while as we, you know, went down that rabbit hole trying to prove that, you know, was this or was this not the same family? And it well could be that they're related, but I haven't been able to make that connection yet. That uh, proves my point, though, that uh, when things are passed down, always go back and check sources. Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen this time and again in the Ripper yes. case as well. That's been one of the most um, uh, critical parts of the research and, and kind of frustrating is that um, it's not enough to just conduct the research. And, you know, you get so excited when you make a find, especially what you consider to be a big find. But then you, you really need to validate it by at least two or three other sources. And oftentimes I find that the inaccuracies are just they're just everywhere in these reports. You know, I've got reports all over the place where people that were you know physically sitting in the trial called Frank by some other name. I mean, it's just astonishing to me how inaccurate a lot of the newspaper clippings of the of even, even of the time could be. And wasn't some of the contemporary press reports claimed that she had slit the throats of both uh, Phoebe and her uh, infant daughter? Yeah, that's another part of, uh, you know, what kind of this legend that has cropped up around Mary Percy. And I guess that is more directly how she related to, to being Jill the Ripper. Yes, in in modern reports, you know, even as late as like the 1920s, it was erroneously stated that she uh, murdered both of them and slit both of their throats. Well, of course, baby Tiggy was found to have been dumped in kind of a dump site off of Finchley Road, but she didn't have a bruise to her body, and and the best that that the coroner could suspect was that she had just been, maybe she was suffocated, but maybe she had died of exposure. They just they couldn't tell. Talk to us a little bit about Thomas Bond's role in the Percy investigation. Um, he played a not insignificant role in the Ripper investigation. Some people might say that he played a somewhat of a controversial role in the Ripper investigation. Because these these cases did uh, fall so closely together, there there is significant overlap, like I said earlier, of the officials in the case. Um, but I also think that Ripper studies almost uh, tends to view the Ripper case in a vacuum. Uh, we we see uh, the behavior, uh, we focus on the behavior of the officials during the Ripper investigation, but not too often is it explored what what the same officials' conduct was in in prior or subsequent. Um, cases, and I and I know um, you're you're very much familiar with um, Thomas Bond, the part he played in the Mary Percy case. So, could you uh, go into a little bit of that for us? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I um, had a little bit of tunnel vision too. I have to admit, when I became enamored of this case, um, I only peripherally looked into the Ripper connection, and then once I found that it was you know ridiculous, I just stopped really looking at those files. And then I ran across Thomas Bond, of course, who was kind of this forensic coroner. I I don't, I know what his role was, but what his role in the Mary Percy case is a little bit ambiguous because he gives evidence in trial, um, but I don't think he conducted the autopsy. I believe that Dr. Uh, Pepper, of course, who's connected with the Crippen trial, conducted the autopsy, but I know that Dr. Bond was there in the mortuary room as it was being conducted, and he did take notes and made um, a case file of his own. I also know that he was the person to whom all of the evidence was uh, sent 
from the Percy House, number two Priory Street, where the crime was committed. I think there were 30 or 35 articles in the end of clothing, hair fibers, you know, murder weapons or proposed murder weapons, etc., that he reviewed. What's interesting to me about Dr. Bond is that he has this, you know, really he's perceived as this preeminent surgeon, and yet at least regarding Mary Percy's case, he was pretty sloppy. So I'd like to hear what Martin and the others have to say about their experience with with Thomas Bond, because I was a little disappointed in in how sloppy some of his research was. Not only was his research a bit sloppy, but his conclusions, um, his conclusions, in my opinion, really hurt the case for the prosecution, because not only could he never, um, he could never identify the blood as human blood, but he uh, definitively identified the hairs on the end of the poker as non-human. And the the hairs that were taken from within the uh, preambulator, he could not positively identify as those belonging to Phoebe. So I'm just a little curious about um, why he was so renowned, because at least with regard to Mary Percy, he, he didn't do as as great of a job <laughs> as I was yeah. hoping for, for him to do. Well, the interest of Dr. Bond I don't think anybody's ever claimed that he was a major or a really important uh, forensic forensic physician. He was. What made him important was that he was the uh, medical officer for uh, a division, the Central Division of London. And Dr. Robert Anderson, who was the head of the CID at the time of the Ripper case, clearly depended on him and used him for a great deal in the uh, appalling um, Rose um, oh I've forgotten her surname Millet. now Millet, Millet thank you Millet case yeah where the policeman who found the body was quite sure it was accidental death there were no signs of a struggle uh, but half a dozen doctors went down and found marks on her throat and concluded that she had been strangled uh, Anderson, who was a very opinionated man, had himself uh, gone down and checked what the policeman said, and he agreed there was no struggle. It was accidental death, and he thought the marks must have been caused by her stiff velvet collar, and I think he finally got Bond to agree to this. Then he gets a very, he gets an autopsy, Bond does the autopsy on Mary Jane Kelly, and following that, Anderson has him write a survey of all the five Ripper cases. And he comes to conclusions which are quite different from Baxter Phillips's, though basically his make more sense. Baxter Phillips produces the very silly idea that Catherine Eddowes' murder was the work of an unskilled imitator and not the Ripper. I don't think anybody would agree with him on that now at all. Bond puts that to rest, saying they're all by the same hand. On the other hand, as you say, His observations are often sloppy. He's making uh, a lot of observations on a uh, number of cases he hadn't actually seen himself. He's just going on the case notes. And out of that, he draws up a description of what he thinks the murderer was like. Now, that's aroused interest today because it's described as the first uh, criminal profile, the first Mm. example of profiling. Well, yes, we already had Sherlock Holmes writing, though, and you know the, the Conan Doyle stories about Sherlock Holmes point to a sort of make deductions from what is around the scene of crime, which are very, very close to what's actually uh, described now as the great modern technique of criminal identification analysis. So you're quite right. Bond 
Ken is seen as having an inflated reputation. He's one of the doctors on the spot. He's very important. Recently, there is a suggestion emerging that he may not even have written that autopsy on Mary Jane Kelly himself at all, but his assistant did it, though he signed it, and that there's a page missing from what he put in. Um, that's, yeah, a, a touch of sloppiness. I don't, I, I don't think anybody's going to quarrel with you about that. Well, that is good confirmation because I'm always very insecure, I suppose, in reading these documents and trying to infer from them what may or may not happen, given that this is my first foray into this kind of research. So I'm glad to hear you say that that my initial impression may have been right. I like the fact, if it's your first attempt, you know, in this this field, Beth, that what you you base your deductions very, very carefully on what you've seen as the evidence. You don't appear to start with a bee in your bonnet and go off looking for the evidence to support it, which so many people do. You find a lot of facts and then say, well, now, how do they fit together and base your deductions on that? And that's worth reading. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Uh, Who are some of the other officials that we are aware of who were involved in the Ripper investigation that were also involved in the Percy investigation? Well, McNaughton would have been the most famous, I think. You know, he and his his role in the investigation of Mary Percy was, you know, it was kind of peripheral. I, I, um, I guess the biggest part that he played was that um, as he and Inspector Bannister were going to follow Mary and Clara after they went to the mortuary to identify Phoebe's body, and they were suspicious of Mary, um, it was raining, and a young woman appears kind of out of the alley and pulls... Uh, Melville McNaughton aside and says, hey, I have information about this case. And of course, that detains them there at the mortuary. And that person ends up being um, Elizabeth Stiles, Phoebe's niece. And that's when all the information about, um, you know, kind of Phoebe's suspicions of Mary not not having the best of intentions with she or her husband come to light. There are probably a lot of constables that are also uh, that also belong to both, but I, I don't know enough about the Ripper to talk about it. Maybe you do. Don't tell Keith Skinner. He collects stray constables. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'd love to talk to him then. Uh, you do know, of course, that when you're looking at Melville McNaughton, we're dealing with a man who was obviously uh, an extremely nice, benevolent, generous, affable chap, loved by all sorts of people who worked under him, mm. but incredibly inaccurate. I mean, his own suspect, Montague John Druitt, in the Ripper case, he describes completely wrongly, gets his mm. age wrong and his occupation wrong. Mm. Um, when he talks about Kosminski, he gets the time of his going into the asylum wrong, mm. hopelessly wrong. Um, and Richard Whittington Egan, who'd worked on other cases, when I said I'd found McNaughton pretty inaccurate on the Ripper case, said, oh, yes, he'd worked on something else than that, and he found that McNaughton was very inaccurate. He's not dishonest. He's not mm-hmm. falsely boasting about things. He just goes from rather slapdash memory, and as I get older and older myself, my memory is less and less a useful tool and more a sla- <laughs> snare and a delusion. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's this really sweet scene between uh, one of the constables and McNaughton at the Hogg residence where Mrs. Hogg offers them tea and he's in this quandary because, I'm sorry, not tea, but sherry, because he wants to take the sherry, but he's on (laughs) duty and does he do it? And anyway, 
it really is one a wonderful scene um, that that kind of talks about him or, or portrays him as just as you've said this very warm, affable kind of man. Absolutely, yes, one of the nicest of men, I think. He is, like I said in the the beginning, was the one who came up with this uh, story that she was playing the piano, saying "Killing mice, killing mice," and he. But before he had said that in um, the first section of that part about Mary Percy, he mentions that she is the most physically strong female he has ever met in his life. Right, I was going to mention that. Cause the, that effect. Yeah, I said, I've never seen a woman with a stronger physique, was the exact quote. Yeah. What 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 kind of uh, physique did Mary Percy actually have, Sarah? Well, it's really hard to tell. I mean, she was physically shorter and thinner than Phoebe. Um, I don't know if that is sort of a, a British colloquialism, you know, to describe a woman who's not terribly attractive and maybe of the lower class as strong. I don't know. Martin, can you speak to that? Was that... Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I I don't necessarily, um, uh, certainly from the wax figure, the effigy at at, um, Tussauds and some of the other uh, woodcuts that I've seen of Mary, I would not describe her as terribly strong or... Uh, mannish in any way. And even the reporters who were commenting about her physique and appearance, uh, that's not what they capitalized on. They, they didn't highlight her, phys- her physicality. They really talked about um, her terrible teeth. They talked about her long neck. They talked about her uh, lustrous, gorgeous blue eyes and her you know, burnt auburn hair that, that trailed down her back in lovely tendrils, that kind of stuff. They really talked about what would, would to me, sounds more like uh, feminine qualities than masculine qualities. And even Inspector Bannister and some of those that were, that were quite diligent and, um, and particular about their investigation, uh, they didn't talk about that you know, with regard to her being physically strong or unusually mannish in any way. I think that may be, you know, McNaughton, I believe he he writes that in his memoirs, and that may be, you know, it's after the fact, first of all, by many, many years, and it may be just a bit of the embellishment that made for a good read, not necessarily true. (laughs) You could have misremembered it. I also wonder if it could have just been a a subtle thing to... uh maybe justify her uh, being convicted alone and being hanged for such a brutal crime. I think that's a, a brilliant explanation. Because, you know, um, James Berry, her, her executioner, described her as the most beautiful woman he'd ever hanged. And most, <laughs> <laughs> most of the descriptions of Mary are that she was actually a very beautiful woman. In fact, the only people that I've come across that describe her otherwise were female reporters who had their own reasons to downplay her femininity because they were very anxious for her to hang. I, I would offer as an interesting comparison the contemporary reports which all said Mary Jane Kelly was young and good-looking and attractive. And Colin Wilson, looking at the woodcuts of her, said, hmm, she looks as if she could fell a cart horse with an uppercut. <laughs> Yeah, certainly my idea of beauty um, would not include Mary Percy. I don't, I've never thought of her as a particularly beautiful woman. That said, uh, there, is, there was absolutely something striking to me about her, or else I would not have, just based on a photograph, spent three years of my life researching and writing this mm-hmm. book. So, you know, she must have been somewhat physically charismatic. Um, speaking of that, have you, have you uh, come across any other photographs of uh, Mary Percy? Uh, no, what I've come across, um, most of the very best detailed information I have or physical descriptions of her have all come from the local 
um, archives in Camden. And I've spent a lot of time there doing research. I'm going back this summer. I know that there are two in-life pictures of her uh, that are at the Black Museum. And I'm working on trying to get access to that now um, through the help of some other researchers. I hope that that comes about, but I'm not, I'm not terribly uh, optimistic about that. And there is a, there's a reference to a, an in-life photograph that I believe was placed in Lloyd's of London. Um, her mother talks about it. Uh, a Lloyd's reporter came by uh, just shortly before the, she was executed, and, and um, apparently it had run. And Mrs. Wheeler, Charlotte Ann Wheeler, said, you know, I would really like to get a copy of that photograph. She looks so beautiful in her in her evening gown. I'm very curious about this picture because, it, it you know, one, I wonder who she's with. And two, it may be a more um, realistic description of her because every other picture that we have of her is either a wax effigy, which I believe was, you know, embellished, embellished those characteristics that were not terribly beautiful to make her look scarier. Um, or we have woodcuts, which... You know, we're very often, uh, they just weren't, in my opinion, they didn't really do justice to the, to the live human being. They tend to, I find them to be very similar. I don't know if that's true or not, Martin. Maybe you can talk about that, but. Uh, I'm going to say something quite other, and that is after the program, through John, get in touch with me so that I can put you in touch with Keith Skinner to see if we can get those photographs for you from Scotland Yard. Oh, you would be my hero. <laughs> thank you, well, thank you. get John to put you in touch with me, and we're okay. really trying to do that. To be your hero, I'll do anything. Now, on photographs, <laughs> you must talk to Rob. Rob is the photograph man. His work on finding photographs in, and a photographer in Jack the Ripper is, in my opinion, the best work that's been done over the last 10 years, uh, perhaps except for the discovery that two witnesses we thought were private detectives were actually confidence tricksters. So talk photographs to Rob. He really knows his stuff. I don't. I'm just blushing. I'm just glad this is not a video cast right now. uh, (laughs) Thanks for those kind words, Martin. Um, In regards to the woodcuts, um, Sarah Beth, yeah, they they often tend to to be uh, wildly inaccurate. Uh. They tend to be a lot like press reports in in the fact that that some are actually quite well done. Um, Because I've seen ones that are actually based on photographs when I've compared them to the photographs. Sometimes they'll change the more gruesome details and... And things like that, but uh, you know, and and others just simply make it up. You know, yeah. quite frankly, they 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 don't even know what the person looked like in life. They'll they'll get a description from a, a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, and then they will just go with it, and and it will be look probably nothing like the real person. So uh, when it comes to those, no, uh, you're going to get wildly inaccurate uh, looking woodcuts. Uh, I mean, e- even the illustrations that that we that we see from uh, certain people that we do not have photographs of, like uh, Frederick Aberline, uh, tend to be you know, slightly different. They tend right. not to look like one another, which is, may, makes them harder to identify in an actual photograph. So, mm-hmm. uh, Vis-a-vis the woodcuts, before the mortuary photographs came out, I published the conclusion that Elizabeth Stride must have been much better looking than the woodcut of her, which was all we knew at that time from the Illustrated Police Gazette, since Inspector Dew, who saw the body in the mortuary, said she must have been very good looking when she was younger and been very proud of her long curly hair. And I said, well, for God's sake, the Harridan, who's in the Illustrated Police Gazette, would never have a young man in his 20s say that about her. Mm. And then out came the mortuary photograph, and yes, Elizabeth Stride was basically a very good looking woman with a rather swollen mm. underlip. 
Yes. Well, yeah, speaking of those mortuary photos, that's something that perhaps the two of you um, would know better than I. I assume that there are mortuary photos of, of Phoebe and baby Tiggy, but I have no idea where they would be kept. I went to the Hampstead Mortuary to try and find the original files, uh, the coroner's reports, and was told that um, there had been a fire and all of it had burned. Now, that could be the mortuary, you know, playing the trick on the silly little American girl. I don't know, but I've been completely unsuccessful in finding any mortuary files or photographs. Uh, have yeah. you checked Meepo? Sorry, go on. Um, yeah, you're going to have to check exactly, as Martin says, with the Metropolitan uh, Police, um, also uh, Home Office. But, uh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll also uh, let, get in touch with you. Let after. me just say, you know, the, the Metropolitan Police files are in the National Archives in England. Yeah. And they're under the category MEPO, MEPO. There might also be files on her under HO for Home Office. Mm-hmm. I think I have all of those. I I ordered them and then I went over and looked at the the actual the actuals too. So I think I have all of that. But you know, missing from it, I would think that there would have been um, you know reports from. From the detectives, I can't find any of that. Is that going to be at Scotland Yard, or is that going to be in the Meepo files? Oh, they'll be destroyed. They're not going to hold on to detectives on the spot notebooks. Um, One or two were maintained merely as archaic illustrations of what they were like in the the Metropolitan Police Museum, which is different from the Black Museum, and Mm -hmm. which is, in fact, really just a lot of artifacts housed in a warehouse, which you can't go around and inspect easily. There's nothing of interest on this case there. I've looked at the stuff they have there. Rob is again going to tell you much, much more about where and how you find photographs. He has real okay. expertise on that. Um, like Martin, I'll uh, I'll contact you after the show, and we can, um, you know, discuss uh, maybe uh, where to look for them and how to find them. Okay, that would be wonderful. Now, like you had mentioned, the most popular image of Mary Percy is from Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. What I found it interesting was she was that figure was placed in a display that had a lot of the furniture and the perambulator from the case um, surrounding her. She, she, they put they put this wax figure in a kitchen um, with with like I said some of the um, furniture from from the case. Do we know if any of that has su- survived? In particular, yeah. the the carriage. Yeah, we do actually. I know that it is in a warehouse, Madame Tussauds warehouse somewhere on some dock. (laughs) Um, They've sent me photographs of it. And not only did they take, uh, I I have the actual receipt that um, Mary signed. She was paid 25 pounds for all of the contents of her house, which was picked up immediately, like the day after the news broke. And it was obvious that she was the only suspect. And um, in addition to taking the contents of the house, they also went to Frank Hogg and asked him to shave his beard. And they bought his beard from him and put that (laughs) in the tableau as well. I mean, these cats were like, just talk about Barnum and Bailey. I mean, they they just took the the day. It was really interesting um, to learn that. But yes, apparently all of that uh, evidence is still in some warehouse. And I've contacted the archives and they've been very generous with me. Um, giving me photographs and, you know, receipt books and things like that. But they've said that, you know, it, it would be kind of a cold day before I would actually get to go see the physical items. 
Yeah, this is this goes way back with Madame Tussauds. They went right back to the 1840s. They were into collecting the genuine criminalia from people that they put into the uh, Chamber of Horrors, mm -hmm. starting with, I think, the Taglioni coat, which was a fashionable shortcut of coat worn by a young man who killed a prostitute in St. Giles in about 1844. It, the... Uh, odd man is the totally vain, I think it was John George Haig, the acid bath murder, it was either him or uh, Neville Heath, left his suit very deliberately and said he wanted that suit to be the one that uh, was on his dummy in the Chamber of Horrors, and oh it is. Oh, one of the, also, um, one of the images of uh, Holly Crippen that we're fam most familiar with, and it was printed on the cover of Tom Cullen's book, um, is actually the um, wax effigy of him and, and mm. not a picture from life. Um, so I find it interesting that Madame Tussauds' wax figures are sometimes more um, frequently used as representations of these murderers than you know, photographs from life. Like mm -hmm. in the case of Crippen. Yep. Yeah, and supposedly uh, there was um, a, a wax figure. I, I think it was also a Phoebe and the baby, or else it was just accompanied by a photograph of them in life. I've never been able to find that, though. I'm not sure. I, that may not even be true, but I've heard from a couple of sources that it is. I've just never been able to track it down. Quickly, I want to go back to the... Um, the theory of her possibly having an accomplice, because one of the more interesting aspects of this case, in my opinion, is that as she was trying to remove the body from the house in the pram, the residents that lived inside of this building with her started coming home. Right. And and so um, she actually had to physically help uh, a couple of her um, roommates, for lack of a better term, um, around the pram with the body of Phoebe Hogg in it so they can get inside of the house. Mm -hmm. and, they didn't, and they didn't find this strange at all, apparently. Yeah, yeah. and again, that's another one of, the, um, one of the better points to make about why this probably wasn't premeditated. You know, if it was premeditated, then she was one of the most disorganized criminals <laughs> that <laughs> crime has ever seen because the... The, the thought of, I, I'm, I mean, just, just like logically go to the end here with me. I'm going to lure a friend of mine to my house. I'm going to bludgeon her to death with a poker and then cut her head off. And then I'm going to stuff her in a baby's preambulator and wheel her around and dump her at the best spot possible, you know, in the middle of, of, of the equivalent of like London rush hour. It was 7, 10 p.m. You know, she was just terribly disorganized, which is why I don't think it was premeditated. But yes, it is true that after she put Phoebe's body in the pram, it was overstuffed and the hallway is very, very narrow. And she had the pram out in the hallway. She was locking her doors when Mr. Butler came home from work at about 6, 10 p.m., and, and there was such little room between the, the wall of the hall, the stairwell, the wall of the hall, and the pram that she had to, Mary had to physically, you know, extend her hand so that she could guide Mr. Butler around this pram <laughs> in which was stuffed this dead body. And then, if that's not bad enough, as she's, you know, frantic to get this thing out and onto the street, his wife comes home. <laughs> so she has to do the same thing for him, for her, too. And as she was uh, pushing the pram through the streets, there were several witnesses who saw her and recognized her. And, and apparently she tried to, like, duck behind as she's pushing this thing. 
um, she'd be ducking and kind of trying to hide her face um, so in the attempt to not be recognized by these people who knew her. Yeah, you know, and it's funny you mentioned that because I actually don't think she was trying to hide her face. I think that she was putting her weight behind the pram. <laughs> and it looked like she was ducking. But do you have to imagine, I mean, this was a woman that weighed 140 pounds. I think that's 10 stones, right? But she was about 140 pounds. And, um, you know, this pram was never intended to wheel this woman's body around. And I think she was, like, hunched over trying to put all put her shoulder into it, basically. That Not makes perfect sense. sense. <laughs> Pram ultimately broke down and she had to abandon it on the streets, didn't she? That's exactly right. That's that's exactly why the body was, was dumped there, in my opinion. Um, and, and just to put it into context for you, it was found 10 minutes later. That's wow. fascinating to me. No. Whoa. She was not far off then. No. Absolutely not. Oh, well, they're the, the glorious lunatics who lurk around the Ripper case, I'm sure, will say, so she was Jill the Ripper. She <laughs> knew how to get away with a 10-minute start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your book, uh, Sarah, um, what, what's its title again? A Woman at the Devil's Door. And, and it, you're currently shopping for a publisher, is that correct? I am, yes, I am. So any help there would be greatly appreciated. Okay. And uh, what, what is your website? Where can people get a hold of you and read about some of your research into the Percy case? Sure. There, um, you can go to sarahbethhopton.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-B-E-T-H-H-O-P-T-O-N.com. And on there is a book trailer and a blog. And eventually that blog will be moved to its own, you know, Mary Percy uh, website. But for right now, I'm just hosting it on my personal website and all the information is on there. Okay. And does anyone else have any further questions about uh, the case of Mary Percy before we call it a podcast? No, I just wanted to say that uh, this has been a fascinating education for me. Um, I've only read about the Mary Percy case like a lot of people just from, uh, you know, short short uh, stories published in anthologies years ago. And um, thanks for cl- uh, correcting a lot of the myths and and things we didn't understand. Um, I, I'm definitely looking forward to your book. Thank you I, so much. And I am too. I contributed to some of those anthologies <laughs> that Rob's <laughs> just mentioned. So did a little bit of work on uh, her back in those days. But it was absolutely fascinating to hear you, and I look forward to the book. Thank you so much. Okay, and I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Right, thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Martin and Robert. And that was RipperCast, episode 49, Mary Percy and Jill the Ripper. Again, I want to thank Sarah Beth Hopton for being on the show today, as well as Martin Fido and Robert McLaughlin. We are a podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at the website for free at www.casebook.org, and also for free in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section in the Society and Culture History Department, or key search word, RipperCast. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.